Hey everyone, this is Gans, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of everything that's going on in European technology. My guest today is James Weiss, partner at Bollerton, one of Europe's most prolific venture capital firms. James joined Bollerton in 2013, where he focuses on health, productivity, and security. Since then, he has led investments in companies like Sophia Genetics, Detectify, and Kaya Health. James is also a trustee at Dot Everyone, a charity that advocates for responsible approaches to using new technologies, and served in 2011 as a specialist advisor to Parliament. Today's episode is a wide-ranging conversation on startups and the role of government in innovation. We discuss whether the rate of productivity is slowing down or not, why startups should tackle bigger problems, why power is shifting from cities to regions, and much, much more. I found this conversation fascinating, so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy, so I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, it's very kind. So, by way of introduction, why don't you tell the audience what's your role at Boulderton and what's your focus over there? Sure, so I'm a partner at Boulderton Capital. There's um, six or seven of us in the partnership and we're a team of about 60 and we're an early stage venture fund. So we manage about $4 billion and where we focus really is um, on go-to-market and new markets. That's where we focus, which is traditionally what people have called Series A. So we don't take risk on team, which is something like Entrepreneur First and Y Combinator do. We want to back the, the, the best teams. We don't take risk on product, which is something say seed firms do. We want to back products as we can feel and test and understand from the numbers where we really take risk is and go to market. And that's series A investing. And um, we invest in anywhere where we see software business models working. And obviously that universe has expanded quite rapidly over the last decade or so. And so that can mean traditional consumer and fintech and uh, health and education, and it can mean enterprise SaaS and cybersecurity, and, and we have investments across the board there. Internally, we try actually not to focus too much. We sort of battle each other on every thesis and we challenge each other to learn new things. But I found myself investing more than anything else in health and productivity. So any software which is improving human health and any software which is improving any kind of professions, productivity, mostly developers, because there's been such a demand for software and as a result for developers over the last decade, but now into almost every other area of enterprise sales. What framework did you use to pick those markets for you? Or do you think it's your personal edge or how do you come to focus on productivity and, and, and health? Well, I think the, the, there's a bottom-up and a top-down approach to everything you do in venture investing, right? Because you have to take a 10-year, if not longer, view of every kind of investment you make. It's almost unique as a financial asset class and how long you have to make these decisions and keep them. There's no, there's no shorting in this market. And then there's also the immediate drive of meeting intelligent, driven, ambitious people and learning from them on a day-to-day basis, which changes your 10-year view. And so I started working and focusing on health and productivity because I believe that over the next decade or so, there's going to be enough uniformity in the platforms that those that is offered there. So in, in, in enterprise SaaS, for example, and productivity, there's plenty of uh, stable platforms now on the back end, which allow new experimentation on the front end. And then in health, there's changes to healthcare systems and individual access to 
software through smartphones and through new de devices. That means that new software and health is going to be developed. But then ultimately, my theses on an individual basis are driven by impressive and thoughtful entrepreneurs I meet and thinkers I meet on a day-to-day -day basis. So I got triangulated into it by ultimately meeting some really impressive people and then thinking about, well, what's the world going to look like in 10 or 20 years' time? And then you coalesce around these couple of areas. But, you know, despite those two very, very broad areas, our individual theses of England probably change almost every day. So going back to the productivity question, and this is one of the themes that we wanted to cover is, do you think the rate of progress, the rate of productivity is slowing down over the past few decades? Yeah, well, those, those are two, two really different questions. But certainly, if you think about human progress as a whole, productivity does play a part in it. And there's many other areas of human progress. I mean, speaking in a week where you know, there's, we've seen a horrific murder um, of George Floyd at the hands of police brutality and continued repercussions of the impact of the pandemic we're living through, human progress feels like it's going much the wrong direction and, and certainly isn't aligned particularly well to, to productivity. But within productivity, we are seeing, I think, the fastest agglomeration of tools and power in certain areas and certain sectors of the economy that, that has arguably ever happened in terms of increasing output per hour. The challenge is it's not particularly well distributed. So you can do now with the tools at your disposal in a garage in San Francisco, what no entrepreneur has ever been able to do before, right? For free, basically. You have almost free compute on the back end, but the power of AWS and Google Cloud of a, you know, a single turnkey APIs is kind of mind blowing. You have uh, tools like Instagram and Twitter and broad social media platforms, which give you access to a huge audience. Once again, almost for free, you can get distribution for free with the right viral campaign. You have tools which are allowing you to build things, whether that be at the extremes, things like 3D printing, or it would be synthetic biology, changes in the ease of coding through no-code and low-code platforms, which for almost nothing allows you to create from scratch huge value. And so all of these tools, this massive tool set is available at everyone's disposal and incredibly cheaply, which should mean we're living in an era of unbridled productivity. But that ability to access those tools the permission, the societal permission to access them, the training and education you need, both in terms of formal training, but the social uh, capital around you to use them uh, isn't evenly distributed. And then there is just some professions which straight out stop you innovating and some parts of the economy which straight out stop you innovating and using them. And so we're in a kind of weird world where I do believe productivity as a whole is increasing and will continue to increase even more rapidly in the coming decades but it isn't being distributed particularly well. And do you think this uneven productivity is translating to innovation at the same rate than, let's say, previous decades? Because there's this argument that we're not tackling the, the right problems. I'm not saying it's my argument, but it's an argument that's yeah. really public. Yeah. I could, yeah, and if you, if you look at many measures of productivity that traditional economists use, we're struggling, right? We're flatlining in most areas because the areas of innovation that people have seen change quickly, whether that be in personal electronics or it be in even mobility now, you know, they're not the major areas that matter to human well-being. Health and education, property and employment are all areas where uh, access to these things, improvement in individual welfare, improvement in individual wages even, has kind of stagnated. 
So it's hard, I, I admit it, it's hard to say that, you know, we're progressing when there's been so much stagnation in other parts of the economy. But I think that the progress in software infrastructure, which is where I see a huge amount of progress at the moment, is essentially the platform that is going to allow and hopefully unlock innovation into these new areas of the economy. So we now have the ability to use machine learning, for example, to better understand genomics so that we can radically change the way future healthcare systems work. We have that ability that is unlocking innovation and it's happening quite fast. The bigger barrier is not, is there as much innovation, you know, oh, in the last two decades, we saw the internet and then the smartphone, what's coming next? The bigger barrier to me isn't like there needs to be quantum computing or, you know, fission power or something like that to fundamentally change innovation again. It's actually more behavioral. It's how can we change certain parts of the economy to adapt and adapt to these new tools to drive innovation in health and education to see real change rather than say we need a shiny new device or we need a shiny new approach to software to feel like we're innovating. I think we could start breaking down this problem into sort of two ways. First, it's about funders tackling bigger problems. And the second one is governments because most of the problems that you mentioned or the areas, health, property, they are very, very interlinked with the government. But let's, let's start with the founders. Do you think should start, like startups should tackle bigger problems? Yeah, look, I think founders, the best founders always are tackling huge issues, right? If you look at the, you know, the CEO of Zoom's mission, it's connecting everyone, right? It's, he's fundamentally changed. The success of Zoom has, um, and the timing, I guess, has allowed people to survive economically to some extent in a global pandemic that without video streaming, without WebRTC and all of the supporting structure around it and all the bandwidth that we have, it wouldn't be possible. Where um, I see a lot of founders hold back or get concerned is when you start looking at areas of the economy which aren't as open and easy to innovate within and disrupt. So because of the huge behavioral shifts required or because of existing regulation or because of high barriers to entry because of CapEx or because of the time it takes to get a product to market, so like battery technologies, for example. There is a natural challenge for founders who want to experiment, innovate, work in a very tight feedback cycle and learn every day from their users and from their products and from you know, the data how to build a more disruptive product and industries where naturally those iteration cycles are longer because you can't see the impact necessarily of a big behavioral shift like online learning and outcomes because you may it may take a, a child's life or at least their earliest education to know if we fundamentally changed um, their abilities because of a certain different approach to education. The same thing in healthcare, right? You can't just launch a new pharmaceutical product tomorrow and see how many people it kills and then I'll change it a little bit and I'll launch a new one, right? You can't do that. And so I think there's some aversion to tackling those issues because of that natural longer um, cycle. But if, as some people argue, a lot of the low hanging fruit in modern software businesses has been snapped up by the, the last wave of software businesses, the most ambitious founders who want to build the next world-defining and category-defining companies are going to have to shift in these spaces. If you believe the hypothesis, they're going to have to go into these spaces. And there is no reason why there can't be $100 billion, you know, trillion-dollar businesses built, which are fundamentally changing really important outcomes for humans. And so I think you'll see founders accept that trade-off between 
fast scaling and fast iteration and longer cycles and more regulation in order to have that scale of impact. You mentioned long feedback cycles in these in industries like health and education, and that's something that we see in venture capital as well, and we discussed that before. How do you think about this problem? And how do you think we could solve for it in other industries? So the, the long feedback cycle in venture capital is part of the product, right? It's the most amazing part of the product. It allows you to go through ups and downs, through recessions and hiring and new geographies, new products. It's an incredible asset class that allows you to experiment and scale like that over time. So in a way, long feedback cycles aren't a terrible thing. I think that in certain scales, right? I think that the exciting thing that um, venture capital has, though, is the ability to make an investment over 10, 20 years, but learn from hundreds, thousands, if not tens of thousands of other venture-backed companies and apply all of those learnings into a framework and then make decisions. And uh, the, the challenge in health and education in particular is there aren't many frameworks for highly successful, scalable, impactful uh, innovation models. If you look at the successes of certain industrial revolutions, there's a handful really that you can start drawing on and really learning from and saying, well, this is what happened in you know, the post-World War II era and this is what happened at the early telecoms era. And this is what happened in the, fun, in the first wave of software innovation on the internet. And you can start applying those models to health and education. But it's, it's, it's tough going, right? There isn't a lot to draw on. Education systems in the UK, for example, you know, we've got a primary and secondary school education system which hasn't really changed much since 1945 and arguably was based on pre-war Victorian styles of education. And we have a university system where the top two universities there really haven't changed much since uh, the 10 hundreds. So Oxford, which is I think a thousand years old officially or close to it, you know, hasn't really innovated in its model for quite a long time. You know, uh, Oxford didn't even let women in until you know the 1900s. It was incredible. It's thousand year history. You know that 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 lack of change I think gives you a sense of how difficult it is it is to innovate in those kind of spaces. What I think has changed is that the distribution of these services has started to become much more personalized and decentralized. So China now has 93% of its minors online, young children online and children online, when they had less than 1% a decade ago. That, that is a change which you can then use because of that completely new shift in, in distribution to create new forms of, of uh, education. And uh, so rather than looking exclusively within the traditional state-centered solutions. I think for things like further education, for things like after-school education, like learning a new language, there's clearly things happening through apps and other services, both you know, state-invested ones, state-owned state ones, and in the private sector, which are starting to break through that longer innovation cycle. And in health, arguably we're seeing the same thing. There's the, the relatively slow-moving centralized state systems which are absolutely essential to the functioning of a, of a progressive democracy and then there's the pharmaceutical industry which is heavily regulated and, and arguably lacking in competition to drive change but they also have very long feedback cycles because of the way that the regulation works in that space but around those traditional routes there are now things where people you know whether it's couch the 5k encouraging people to tackle you know get get moving or it's at the extremes, things like Strava, whether it's you know, basic apps like MyFitnessPal to help you track what you're eating, all the way through to kind of advanced nutritional testing with microbiomes mixed with fasting, 
that some people at the far end of the scale use to to body hack and you know whether it's ex exercises like using just the simple seven minute workout or it's using computer vision to improve your uh, musculoskeletal health like companies like high health which i'm invested in do there's people trying different things using new distribution platforms like phones and, and computers to experiment in that space and they're having a real impact so we're seeing that innovation happen the challenge is how do you distribute that across more and more of the population and how do you allow people who work in particular in the state sector so doctors and nurses and frontline care workers how do you give them the power to innovate and give them the tools they need to do their jobs i think that our thesis in this space was it's going to be five ten years before you allow a doctor in the uk at least to fully adapt to online calls and video screening obviously we've seen a behavioral shift in the last three months which has wiped out that five to ten year journey i think the uk government had a 2024 target for a certain percentage of its gp calls online which has already been surpassed so we are seeing cycles of innovation there but you have to you have to change the behavior of the state and, and the way it innovates a lot if you want to see mass change this brings me to something you wrote in a piece for TechCrunch, where you said that the innovation barrier is not technical, it's political. Can you unpack that for me a bit more? Yeah, it's political and behavioral. So I think as I, as I referenced, the, there are big technological exciting breakthroughs that people are working on, right? Whether it's battery technology or quantum computing or it's you know, advanced, deeper and deeper advancements in machine learning and deep learning. But actually, if you want to change most people's lives it's better education better healthcare it's decent property it's better welfare for those who need it it's better access to these things for those who don't have it and the technical barriers there are very low if you look at the technological requirements of allowing someone who is housebound for whatever health reasons to talk to a gp well that technology has existed for 20 to 30 years the cost of it is now falling rapidly and, and accessible to most people and the state should be paying for it giving people access to health through that route everyone uh, obviously some people do need face-to-face -face support for gps there's lots of cases where that's necessary but for those who don't for those who can be cared that way they should have access to it that is not a technical breakthrough right apps like Cree and babylon and to, to some extent dr lieb and other companies in this space in europe who are doing very well at the moment they are not deep tech companies. There are for sure technological challenges around regulation and compliance. It's not non-trivial, but they're not deep tech companies and they don't have to be. The reason why those companies, I think now coming to the fore rather than five years ago is, is political. It's a, it's, a, it's a desire and will to improve the efficiencies and outcomes of healthcare through using new technologies. So how do you think founders should look at these problems. Uh, you were a special advisor to the government, so you were on both sides of the aisle. What can both parties learn from each other? Yeah, I was apolitical, I was a specialist advisor. It's a, a tiny difference. So I think one of the biggest challenges in modern startup founders, especially in the software space, is their absolute obsession with the customer, right? And this is a huge strength and it's a huge weakness. And this is one thing I sort of learned in government. When you're making policy, good policy at least, and when you're trying to be progressive, and most people who work in politics on most different you know, angles, certainly in Britain, you know, really do care about going into politics to make the world a better place for everyone. When you're working on policy, you have to consider everyone, the impact it has on everyone. Right? Even niche areas of policy, you know, TV licenses, let's say, 
when you think about TV licenses, like understanding the differences in the ability to pay, understanding how important it is for certain people to have access to television for basic information, to tackle loneliness, for entertainment, you know, these things are massive for different demographics and people from different sociological backgrounds. It's really, really important to consider everything. Startup founders don't consider anyone but customers. That's what everyone's been told, right? You focus on the customer. Anyone outside of that is non, non-relevant. And there's some strengths to doing that. There's a huge, huge weaknesses as well. And I think the failings of some of the greatest software businesses built in the last two or three decades has been that they have ignored broader society because of their obsession with the customer, right? So what you can't do in policy. And that's one thing I think startup firms can learn from the government. On the other hand, on the other side of it, I think as policymakers and as politicians, but you know, more importantly, civil servants, who I think do a lot of the heavy lifting in this space, you know, they need to think about how do they optimize individual things for the people who need them. And I think the obsession with the customer to some, some extent can be really beneficial in government as well. I think that's sort of one of the things that I've really, like crossing the barrier a few different times, seen in the way people think as um, both the strength and the weakness on both sides. Like startups are often labeled as the rebels and, and government is often labeled or looked at as the authority. Do you think that that has something to do with this whole problem? Do you think that's even an accurate statement? No, I don't think it's an accurate statement at all. I think that, you know, if you, People who, who are driven and ambitious to see change in the world, which can be startup founders, it may be political activists, it might be you know, carers and, and educators, you know, often they'll always see themselves against the status quo. And the best example of the status quo is, is the established government, right? That's who you see as uh, being in control, because they are, and that, that is often seen as the status quo. And I think that startup founders I've worked with in particular, naturally, to wake up one morning and say, there is this multi trillion dollar part of the economy I'm going to disrupt and I'm going to own it and I'm going to be the person everyone thinks of as having fundamentally changed it. You know, to have that level of, you know, whether you want to call it confidence or arrogance, it requires you to be anti-status quo, requires you to agitate for change. And so thinking that you then have to go and sit in a room and understand 400 pages of local legislation written by a council in 1972 so that you can put your scooters on certain sides of the road is not necessarily what matches with that level of motivation and desire. And so there is a bit of an anti-establishment bent in, in most founders and startup founders, as they are you know, for all, all people who, who want to change the world. I think that one of the misconceptions there around government is a vast majority of people who are activists and who end up as politicians and who end up working government also want change. That is the goal of being in power, is to use it for a vast majority of people. Right? I'm sure there's bad actors, but that's the vast reason they go into it. And the trade-off is how do you make sure that the change that you want to see can benefit all citizens, which aligns with what the government wants to see, uh, and, and making that interaction work. You mentioned people going to government to see change, but often, or at least from the outside, it looks like people get to government and in most cases can't affect change. What do you think? So the question I want to get here is, I think that's part of the size of government, right? You're essentially a tiny, tiny cog in a huge, huge machine, and there are a million rules around that machine. And those rules are, are in place for, for a reason, right? But what do you think is the ideal size of government? So, uh, well, first of all, you're right to say that, that there's a scale issue, right? And I think people expect, they wanna see innovation happen. 
Um, but if you're the health secretary of the United Kingdom, for example, the NHS has a budget of well over 100 billion pounds. So look, think of a company with a similar kind of scale and employees and their ability to innovate and then make that company the most important company in the world, arguably, right? Like providing healthcare to everyone free at the point of access is essential. It's absolutely you know, the most important thing that you can do as a, com- as a state, I think. Uh, and so expecting someone to be able to innovate like a startup obviously is unrealistic. You're right there. And I don't think there is a correct size in terms of the, the total quantum of, I guess, the, the total size of an organization, right? I think it's more around how do you make sure individuals are empowered to make decisions. And the one reflection I have of like large businesses, but in particular government-run uh, institutions, is how little power and trust they often have in their employees on the front line. Uh, and to give you an example of that, you know, when I, I before I was a Boulderton, I, I worked in a charity. It's called the Social Business Trust. So it was an impact fund. And uh, we were working with an organization that was trying to improve healthcare for new mothers and provide them with support, especially those who, who where English wasn't their first language. So they, they, they struggled to get support uh, from the state because they couldn't access it. And I had to shadow a health visitor who's a um, nurse who goes into um, homes when babies are just born and they weigh the baby and they give you some advice and they encourage you to write things down in a little book. And that was about seven or eight years ago now. But you know, I spoke to those health visitors and they, they weren't allowed to use their, at the time I think it was Blackberries, but they weren't allowed to use their phones to access any information because the government had said no. So they still had to carry around with them a big, thick calendar. They couldn't put any of the data when they rate the baby into an app. So they had to write it down with pencil and paper in the same book everyone else has which that means they couldn't access it until they were in the home. They couldn't read up about it ahead of time. The only technological change they'd seen in decades of working there was they now had a computer and they basically would use the computer to print out their rotor, but they still put the rotor up on a pin board because it was hard to access on the computer because it took, you know, took time to boot it up and everything else. Why would you just use a computer for a calendar rotor? So those people that I worked with and shadowed you know, it was there for uh, a few weeks. Um, so it's not like I had huge amounts of insight, but I've seen it in many different parts of the state. You know, they knew how they could use technology to be better at their jobs. They were smart people. They could easily have adapted and tried new things, but they weren't allowed to. And we basically took away the power of those people who are incredibly important in our economy to choose the tools they needed to be productive. Now, if you think about it as a startup, you know, you can, oh, maybe, you know, you can use Excel, you can use Google Docs, and maybe now you can use or Google Sheets. Now you can use Airtable uh, on top of Airtable. You can start using things like Data IQ, and you can start building this whole stack. And you have freedom to innovate and freedom to experiment. And that's permission and that's power for you as a as a junior employee. You've been there two weeks. You could try new tools. You go and talk to someone who works in local council and show them Airtable. They would not be allowed to use it, right? And for them to even get the permission to use it is probably three or four rungs up their pay grade, right? and probably six months worth of effort, and they've got bigger things to deal with, right? They've got to make sure the bins get picked up on time and make sure that the local playground is properly you know, refurbished. They've got bigger issues to deal with than, than changing their Excel spreadsheets around. And I think that, that is the crux, uh, I find, of the difference in productivity and of innovation and so much of the challenges when you're innovating in, in a space where the state has, has such power over the provision. And the state should pay for these things. You know, if, in fact, if anything, the state should be expanding welfare services to provide everyone with the ability to learn there's you know you can 
provide all of these services and then say, well, why don't, why isn't our health outcomes improving? Why aren't our health outcomes improving? Why aren't our educational outcomes improving? If you've got access to all these technologies, it means nothing if you're not giving people the power to use them. And I think that that decentralization of trust and making sure that people are empowered to use these tools is like the biggest barrier right now to greater productivity and progress. It sounds to me it's it's part an incentives issue and, and, and in another way, uh, governance issue. How can we use technology to solve this? Because like this is a problem and we should be able to solve this problem. There are huge companies out there that have tens of thousands of employees and they run more like companies and less than governments. Yeah, well, look, a lot of it is cultural, right? There's a huge cultural issue and there's, there's a, a world which is proven that you can empower your employees you can give them equity you can give them uh you know stake in your company you can give them resources like huge resources and pay them well and allow them to experiment and you can trust them to build something really at speed and scale and be successful and that is the modern startup world but it's a pretty closed culture it doesn't invite everyone in there's definitely structural issues with that culture and there's both Um, in terms of representation, but much deeper than that, in terms of the type of people they want to have in the conversation and their focus. And I think that, you know, the open source and trusting and decentralized mentality of a lot of startups has failed to spread for lots of reasons, positive and negative. But the one thing I do think is, is really empowering within the startup space is that people have culturally accepted risk and failure as something which is worth taking. It's far more acceptable. And it's, you know, I'm not saying that you should ever accept failure in something as important as education and healthcare in terms of outcomes, but even rewarding people for at least trying to try a new tool or trying to try a new approach and then failing at it is something which is com completely antithetical to, to a lot of modern culture. And um, it's completely accepted in the startup world. So I think that's one big piece of it. And then the other big piece of it is understanding that outputs are something that we should measure rather than inputs. And a lot of historical management, you know, from big government through to big corporations was, was ultimately about input focus management. It's like, you know, you, how much steel do I have to buy? How many people do I need? Put those two things together, I, I get a car, right? And I think focusing far more on outcomes and outputs, allowing people to experiment more with the inputs, I think is, is a powerful way of thinking about how startups work and something which could be applied in the state sector. To do that, you need more transparency. You need to you know, collect data on what people are doing with their time. And you can't just say, here's taxpayers' money, go and do something with it. We hope you make people healthier. You need to have um, proper oversight. But that oversight doesn't need to come necessarily from five layers of management. It can increasingly come from proper data tracking and observability of outcomes and milestones at different stages of a project. So I think there are cultural shifts required to empower people on the front line to treat you know, everyone who works in these large businesses or large parts of the state sector with the equal you know, dignity we treat the CEO and give them the ability to experiment and also to use modern management techniques to make sure that you, know, you can make data-driven decisions without having 15 layers of management on top of people. Those outcomes need to be measured um, in some kind of way. If you had a dashboard or if you were a government and had a dashboard to assess the health of a population, What are the most important KPIs on that dashboard? So the health is 
health is a uh, broad term, I think, by you mean, right? Uh, I'm using it in a broad sense, not that the health yeah, is yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a functioning and, and, and strong democracy needs broad representation of people and its power base. So one of the things I think Scandinavian countries, increasingly Britain, is getting very good at is understanding who has power and how do they get it. And power, obviously, we always think of as politicians, but it's influential people within society, it's social capital as well as financial capital. But I think a functioning country needs to end up with a broadly representative power base as to its population. And so I would be tracking things like diversity within certain areas of the workforce, diversity within certain areas of the political and media establishments to make sure like we, like we do already through, you know, in progressive things like aware, awareness around the gender pay gap and BAME representation on boards and many other things which increasingly are becoming in tracking, tracking progress uh, and fairness and justice, to be honest with you. You know, those, I think that would be a, a key thing on my dashboard. I think quality of life years is something that we increasingly do well in the UK. That would be something I would track. And this is the idea that it's not just about the longevity of life, it's also about the quality of life. And the quality of life can mean various things across your physical health and your mental health. So you can, of course, you know, help people survive to 90. But if you're not helping them tackle their chronic conditions, which you know, make their lives uncomfortable or, or painful, such as you know, lifelong diabetes or chronic pain through musculoskeletal issues, many other types of chronic pain, then you're not really giving them great life. You're not solving sort of like for the health of the populace particularly well. So quality of life years I'd be tracking. And then GDP, there's a lot of uh, discussion at the moment about the shift of should we be focused as a, as a monetary institution to be focused on managing inflation, but I think they should be focused on GDP. I think productivity per person is really important. Uh, it keeps you competitive as a nation. It brings uh, wealth to individuals. Uh, and it's a sign that if more and more people are being productive and the nation as a whole is being productive, then um, hopefully you're giving people a, a chance of a better life. Great answer. Thank you. We're going to do a bit of a change here. We're going to still stay on the power topic, but let's, let's change topics a bit. So you wrote back in February for, for Exponential View that the power is shifting from cities to regions. Uh, and then you asked what mix of policy changes, private interventions, and technical innovation might tell the balance away from nations, larger cities to smaller cities. Have you found an answer for, for that? And how do you think COVID place in that yeah well i think i think sadly we found an, an answer pretty quickly you know i wrote that in february and i, I think i mentioned the, the spread of the virus and uh, which hadn't yet hit western europe or, or, or the usa yet and said that this is an example which is rising in china that you know, large cities are going to become less attractive for people to live in for lots and lots of reasons and once you're put in lockdown in a small flat in a, in a city you know you start questioning whether or not if you're going to be spending more of your time in your home rather than your place of work, where do you want your home? And what makes a good home or what makes a good community? And the agglomeration effects of cities over the last you know, few hundred years have been quite phenomenal, right? The power that cities have managed to wield and the increased productivity of living in a city versus living in a rural area is undeniable and, and continues to this day in most places in the world. But as many people have been forced to work from home and found themselves in some parts of the economy to be still productive, I think people will increasingly say, well, you know, I can be distributed away from the hub of my company, which often be in a city. So why wouldn't I be? And one of those reasons I think is uh, shared passions and interests. You know, people 
come together uh, because of the arts, because of sports, because of uh, shared endeavours of all kinds. And that is one argument for cities. But now I'm, I, I believe that those kind of things are being replicated online at a much faster pace. So actually online communities of passions and shared interests, I think are becoming the new powerful hubs, the virtual cities as it were, of the next era. And so maybe I want to live with my friends or maybe I want to live uh, in the countryside because I you know, want the fresh air or maybe I still like being in the city for whatever reason, but the prices of the properties hopefully are gonna fall so I can have a bigger place. But what I'm really excited about is the online communities and events that I'm part of, right? the shared passions I have there. And you know, I think that if you look at how people have survived in lockdown with online communication, with their family and friends and various things, everything from like gaming and people finding solace and like competing online in Fortnite or uh, Call of Duty through to people continuing like their Strava competitions at home, but now with press ups and Peloton rather than sort of long runs in the park. I think um, there are these new hubs of interest being built where creative people will live, but it's going to be increasingly online. The policies that you need to change, though, to do that, you need better infrastructure. I think we always are a bit blasé about connectivity and broadband and the ability to be online. Um, the digital divide still exists in, in many parts of even you know, very advanced economies. So making sure people have equal access is important and making sure people still have access to health in their local region there's a terrible health divide in the uk in terms of outcomes i think that was really seen in the way the pandemic was planned for in particular and mobility because if you are living in a region you know the 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 hub and spoke model is enough of a challenge so getting people from a spoke into a hub but the spoke to spoke model is an even bigger challenge you know and if i want to live in a region but decide that might we know some of my friends are in the northwest and some of my friends in the southeast and some of my friends in scotland Solving that transportation issue is going to be a real issue. And having just uh, you know, a handful of motorways isn't going to solve it. One problem uh, that we might need to solve as well is capital deployment. Right now, capital is highly concentrated in cities like London or Paris or, or even like Silicon Valley is the perfect example. How, how are you thinking about that? So, you know, I, I, we, since working remotely, Boulderson have done a number of investments entirely on zoom effectively and different platforms and so we've seen that we can invest in people without having to you know see them physically um and we spend lots of time with them you know we're talking about uh, tens and tens of hours talking to a team and different members of the team virtually and still managed to come to con- build conviction and, and make investments it was, it was hard and harder than in person but we did it and so you know if we can allocate capital to people virtually why would we 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 are effectively allocating capital directly to the person irrespective of where they are. So the regional position of them, whether it's in a major city or a major economy, doesn't matter. I think that the software-focused venture capital is able to invest in people and talent, and that's their primary competitive advantage. That's their primary asset in most cases. And as long as that talent can find each other and work together, it doesn't really matter where they are. And so as long as people feel they can remain productive and collaborate and experimental online, then I, I think capital will follow it. There's no, there's no real reason. Now, there are many benefits to being in an office still. There's cultural benefits for sure. There's a lot of reasons why you may phys- want physical proximity. But for sure, cities aren't going to go away anytime soon. But I think the distribution of capital will certainly move away from 
sort of the handful of mega hubs we've seen. And it is. I mean, it definitely is. I, I think if you look at the number of cities we have in our CRM or locations for companies, A, they're becoming less relevant, but B, they are growing and growing at you know, quite a rate. You know, I reckon our CRM probably could handle 15 to 20 cities five years ago, and I reckon there's over 100 now. And that's just a short, you know, abstract. That's that's a um, one level abstraction from a tiny part of the economy, but it's definitely becoming broader. That shows that companies can be started basically anywhere. Do you think companies can be scaled anywhere? Yeah, look, GitLab, which I think is one of the most successful businesses to be built in the remote world, started off with a founder in Ukraine and the other founder in The Hague. In I think it was The Hague or was it Rotterdam? Anyway. As I think in, in, in the Netherlands, at least. And, you know, they've built a... One last question that I like to ask all guests. Um, what do you think are the biggest bottlenecks preventing more people from starting more companies? In, in society, which prevent people becoming entrepreneurs. And they're historical in some cases, and they're persistent. You know, I think culturally, we don't promote uh, a whole rate, a whole broad different groups of people based on their gender and their class and their race and give them the permission to be experimental and entrepreneurial in the same way as we do others and those discrepancies basically stop some people becoming entrepreneurs and it's not just about access to capital and it's definitely not just about education and it's not just about a sort of technical know-how or abilities it's, it's genuinely a social restriction and when you grow up in a world where none of the entrepreneurs look like you and you grow up in a world with certain expectations of the role you play, whether that be in the family or within society as a whole, you know, that can really hold you back. I think that's the biggest barrier to, to, to more and more people becoming entrepreneurs. And I think that the, the challenge is one which is going to take generations to fix. One of the real frustrations and anger that I find, I find myself having internally uh, when you see so much injustice is that it's not, you know, why hasn't it been fixed yet? Why, why isn't it over? It's like, this is... This is, you know, a democracy as a whole is, a, is still in its experimental phase. We tried it for a few decades or maybe a few hundred years in Greece. Uh, a couple of millennia ago, it, it failed eventually. And uh, we brought it back a few hundred years ago. And we'll see how long it lasts. And democracy requires equality and justice and fairness to exist across everyone in society. I'm not convinced that we're there yet. And I think it's going to be decades and decades and decades. And it's not a fight that's ever over, but decades and decades and decades until we feel like at least some of the anger that we feel now about injustice has died down. Thank you so much for your time, James. It was a pleasure. That's okay. Thank you very much. Hey, this is Gonzaga. 
If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.